There we go. So we had, um, they borrowed my board for Wednesday night uh, class and erased question 12. So if you want to pull up question 12, and I, I look for a marker, but I cannot find a marker. So if you want to pull up question 12 uh, somewhere online, if you want to, uh, we can read that together. Or if you've got it memorized, that's even better. But uh, question 12, before we go to question 13. So question 12 in the catechism is, what is the work of creation? The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Okay, so we've got question 13 up here because it has not been erased. The question 13, how did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image and knowledge, righteousness and holiness with dominion over the creatures. Okay, so we've been through this one the past couple weeks, how God created man, male and female, first of all, and the importance of the doctrine of God creating man in his own image and how a lot of things in Scripture and in humankind and mankind flow directly from that and the way we live our lives and the way we interact with each other in this world being made in the image of God. So today, like I said, we're going to cover here this next part of the phrase in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness that really flows directly from being made in God's image. And like I said, this will be a bit of a shorter lesson for some practical reasons for my purposes, but also because it's really just, it's pretty self-explanatory and it's pretty natural that it flows and pretty logical that it flows directly if we're made in God's own image, then that we're also being made in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness in the original state of mankind. And so that's what we're starting with today, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, and then we'll finish up next week with God creating man with dominion over the creatures. So, like I said last week, looked at the very crucial element of the doctrine of man, wherein man is created in the image of God, and then we brought out some of the implications that follow from that doctrine. And then, once again, this clause from today's uh, catechism lesson flows directly from the fact that man was made in the image of God. Last week, some of the things that we looked at were even some aspects of the image of God that we even retain after the fall. So there's some aspects of man being made in the image of God that were lost, but there were some aspects that we retain from being made in the image of God. But these three right now, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, these are some aspects that were not retained after the fall, at least not in the same capacity that they were before the fall. So we do still contain some measure of knowledge, some measure of righteousness, although it can't be good enough, and some measure of holiness, although that is not, um, you know, not in the same way that God is holy or to be set apart enough to dwell with God in our own selves. Now, we'll look towards the end of being remade in the image of Christ to where we do retain all these things in Christ Jesus. But as far as mankind in general, these things were not retained whenever the fall happened, at least not in the same capacity that Adam and Eve had them before the fall. Okay. So first of all, scriptural support for these things. I'd like to go there first. Now, there are no direct quotations like there were as God creating male and female and after his own image in the creation narrative. So those are directly supported right in the creation narrative that God created male and female and God created after his own image. There's not any direct scriptural support in the creation narrative about knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. 
although you can deduce it from the creation narrative. But the direct scriptural evidence using those words themselves comes from the New Testament. So first of all, we're going to go to Colossians 3. So Colossians 3, and this is what it says there in verses 9 and 10. It says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So that covers knowledge right there. So although Paul is talking about putting on the new man and putting off the old man and the new birth and being born again, what Paul is getting at is that in its original state, mankind was created in knowledge. And we're trying to be renewed in that, in that knowledge whenever we're being renewed like Jesus Christ. So in the original state, Adam and Eve were created in knowledge. Okay? So the other two then come from Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, a couple pages back, says in verses 20 through 24, Paul says, But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. So Paul's getting back to that same thing he was talking about in Colossians. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, so putting on the new man, being born again, being renewed, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, so there we see the image of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Right. So we're recovering that image, we're recovering that likeness of being made in the image and being made in the likeness of God as we were in the beginning, and as Adam and Eve were made in true righteousness and were made in true holiness. Okay, so we got from Colossians 3 that Adam and Eve were created in knowledge, true and perfect knowledge. And then we've got here in Ephesians 4 that Adam and Eve were created in true righteousness and true holiness. Okay? So those are our, our two primary direct scriptural supports where these, these phrases are quoted directly by Paul, the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul here, that Adam and Eve were created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Okay, <laughs> so is that... Pretty, pretty clear. Seems, seems pretty straightforward. And so then, what does, what does all this mean then? What does it mean, or what are some implications, that Adam and Eve were created in knowledge? So first of all, there's the, the um, philosophical category of epistemology. So if you don't know what epistemology is, without any sort of formal definition, it's like an informal definition would be how we know what we know, right? And so Adam and Eve, them being created in true knowledge and perfect knowledge, they already knew everything that they needed to know, and they didn't have to really learn a whole lot. Okay? We have to learn things, we have to discover things, and we have to have a, a, a clear and um, a non-contradictory epistemology whenever we learn things. Okay? We have to have some sort of foundation for our knowledge. Adam and Eve were created in true knowledge and perfect knowledge, a knowledge that they needed, that they knew everything that they needed to know already. So they didn't really have any need for epistemology like we do. All of their knowledge was derived directly from God himself. So whenever he endowed his image on them, he endowed them the knowledge that they needed for everything that they needed to know to live in the garden. 
So they didn't have to learn things. And you can see this when Adam goes to name the, the animals. He knows exactly what they need to be called. Okay, whenever he names them, he knows exactly what they needed to be called. He didn't have to learn things about them in order to name them. He just knows what they need to be called. Um, we do know from the creation narratives that Adam and Eve did have to work, but they knew how to work without any sort of toil and without any sort of sweat because the curse has not been brought upon them. The curse has not affected their knowledge. They have perfect knowledge of how to work the ground without toil and sweat. Okay? They really, Adam and Eve, fully understand creation in a way that we really can't conceive of. So a lot of things in Scripture we can get hints at. This is one of them we can get hints at, but we can't really conceive of what they had, the type of knowledge that they had. They just knew everything that they needed to know. Okay? But more importantly than all this, in their relation to creation is Adam and Eve knew God. Okay? They knew God in a way that we don't know God except through Christ. They knew him from their creation and from their endowment of being created in his image. So back to the creation narrative itself, back in Genesis 1, there are two things you can look at. There's some very uh, little minute differences here in two different parts. So in Genesis 1, in verse 22... God comes in and God pronounces a blessing on the living creatures, okay, on all the, the fish of the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the things that it's actually just the fish of the sea and the birds of the air at this point. But look at verse twenty two, the way it says it says, And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So God gives a blessing to the fish and the birds, and it says, And God's blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Okay? So down, jump down to verse 28, and you see the blessing that God gives to, to the humans, to Adam and Eve. It says, and God blessed them. Now, here's the difference right here. And God said to them, okay, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. So we'll cover that later on. But the key phrase, the key difference here, even though God imparts to them the same blessing here, be fruitful and multiply, at least the beginning, be fruitful and multiply. The difference in that, in between the sea creatures and the birds and the people, it says that, and God said to them. So that's a big difference there because Adam and Eve knew God. They knew God in a way that the creatures do not because they were made in his image. And so the, the biblical idea of knowledge here goes far beyond actually just possessing information. But to truly know something in the Bible, it denotes a close communion and fellowship. And you see that later on whenever, you know, you get the, the begotten passages. You know, Adam knew his wife Eve, Seth knew his wife, Enos knew his wife, so on and so forth. Now that's not just, it is denoting sexually knew their wives, but that's not just what it's talking about. They were close to them. They had a fellowship with them. They were in very close communion with them. So the idea of knowledge then means more than just possessing some information about the, the person or the thing. It's to know them, is to be really close to them. So Adam and Eve, through being made in the image of God, they really did possess a full knowledge of the truth. And more importantly, they had a full knowledge of God. And whenever they had a full knowledge of God, they also had a full knowledge of the law of God until he didn't. It's going to come in a minute. So that's knowledge. 
What then does it mean that Adam and Eve were created in righteousness? So because Adam and Eve had perfect knowledge of God and perfect knowledge of the law of God, they were able to live up to God's standards of obedience. They were able to live up to his standards of the law. And in this way, Adam possessed righteousness. He was able to obey God in perfect obedience, and so he possessed perfect righteousness in the eyes of God until he didn't. Which is going to come in just a minute. So what does it mean that Adam and Eve were created in holiness? This holiness was the root of Adam's outward righteousness. This inward holiness was the root of Adam's outward righteousness. So holiness simply means, if you don't know, it just means set apart. So set apart. And because man was endowed with the image of God, man was able to be different than the rest of creation. And since he was different from the rest of creation, he was set apart by God to enjoy exclusive communion with him. So you see how holiness and knowledge are related in this sense. And this holiness led to a communion that was only possible because man was holy. Right? So Adam and Eve here, they were in the perfect presence of God. And because of their holiness, they found their highest delight in the Lord. Even though they had the garden around them, which was more beautiful than we could possibly imagine. Even though their relationship with each other was perfect at this point. Their highest delight was still in the Lord because God made them holy. They possessed this sort of positive holiness until they didn't. So they lost the possession of these things. They lost the possession of these three great endowments from God because of what comes after creation. And you know, after creation, there's the fall. And the fall brings about an assault. And this assault... Amongst other things, it's an assault, as we looked two weeks ago, on the relationship between men and women, between husband and wife. In some sense, it's an assault on the image of God, especially when murder comes along. But it's also an assault when the fall happens on this knowledge, this righteousness, and this holiness that Adam and Eve were created in. And so it's pretty obvious to anyone who is a true Christian that the fall led to a distortion And it led to a loss of mankind's righteousness and holiness, right? It's pretty obvious that we all know that when the fall happened, man, Adam, Eve, their descendants, the entire human race was no longer righteous and no longer holy in the way that they were. We know that. Everyone knows that. That's very simple, clear Christian doctrine. It is interesting, though. And something that I had actually never noticed before I started preparing this lesson, that the narrative of the fall doesn't really hammer home or it doesn't really place a large emphasis on the fact that Adam and Eve lost their righteousness and their holiness. The the narrative in creation really hammers home the fact that the fall was an assault first and foremost on knowledge. Okay, so go to Genesis three if you want to. For the fall, we get the passage of the fall then. So pay attention here. Try to, try to notice this. Like I, I, I'd never noticed this before. Because I know, I know that the fall is an assault on righteousness and holiness. But I never noticed how much the fall was an assault on knowledge. So Genesis 3, we're going to start off with verses 1 through 4. And then we're going to skip down to 7 and then to 22. So verses 1 through 4 in Genesis 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God, I'm sorry, go on to verse 5, not just verse 4. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay? So there we go. Satan brings it in. Even though Adam and Eve are created in perfect knowledge, Satan brings it in that says, well, maybe your perfect knowledge actually isn't perfect knowledge. Right? There's something else that you need to know. So skip down to verse 7. Verse 7 after they eat the fruit, it says, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. This was something they didn't know before. So the knowledge has been corrupted. It's been distorted. Then skip down to verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. So God, in creating man and endowing man with his own image created Adam and Eve with perfect knowledge. And this knowledge, remember, knowledge also consisting of close communion and close fellowship with God, this knowledge that he had given them was that they only knew good. But now after the fall, they know evil. And more importantly, their natures have been distorted to want to commune with evil instead of communing with God. So now their human natures have a preference for evil instead of good. And so that then is a big, big problem for humanity now and for all of their descendants and for the whole world now because man no longer lives in the knowledge of only good and only communion with God. Now man has a distorted knowledge, a knowledge that wants to commune with evil and be close to evil. So you see then the fall is primarily... It's also obviously an assault on righteousness and holiness. But the creation narrative frames it mostly as an assault on knowledge first. And then comes the others. So then, that's some bad news. But we do have good news, right? We know this because there is a restoration of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Obviously, this comes through Jesus Christ, who Paul describes in Colossians as the image of the invisible God. And we talked about that some last week, Christ being the image of God and the image that is restored that we can look to and be conformed to in his image and his likeness. And this is how we recover knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Through the process of being born again, the new man is conformed to the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ And then the new man displays the image of God in the way that humanity was meant to display it. So you already saw that whenever we were reading Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, being transformed, putting off the old self, putting on the new self. This is how you get true knowledge. This is how you get true righteousness. This is how you get true holiness is through Jesus Christ. Some other scriptural support for this then. I'll let you read these if you'd like to. Someone can go to Isaiah 53. Someone to 2 Corinthians 3, someone to Romans 8, and someone else to John 17. So Isaiah 53, 2 Corinthians 3, Romans 8, John 17. Trying to get to those places. 
right. Isaiah 53. Get my other ones. Quickly. start off with those. So Rome, I mean, sorry, Isaiah 53. Remember, this is the passage of the suffering servant, that beautiful passage that describes Jesus and the sacrifice he is going to be, make and take God's wrath upon him for ourselves. And if someone wants to read Isaiah 53, 11. Yeah, so in the midst of all of this, this, this suffering that, he, that Jesus suffers on our behalf, at the end it says, out of all of this anguish, his soul is going to see and be satisfied. And what do we get from this? We get his righteousness, but his righteousness comes by his knowledge. Okay, So God is restoring us through Jesus Christ in both knowledge and righteousness. That's what it says in the passage of the suffering servant. Okay. If someone is in 2 Corinthians 3, you'll read verse 18. There we go. And so we don't get necessarily, it doesn't use the words knowledge or righteousness here, but you get this idea of us all being transformed into the same image of Jesus Christ. So everyone who is in the body of Christ gets transformed into the image of Christ in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Someone's at Romans 8, you read verse 29. There we go. So those whom God has elected, those whom he has predestined, those people are going to be conformed to the image of his son and be made like him and be able to grasp his knowledge, his righteousness and holiness. And then lastly, in John 17, if someone will read verse three. Remember, this is the Lord's prayer, not the model prayer, but the Lord's prayer, the high priestly prayer that Jesus, before he's being crucified, this is what he prays to God for his people. It's a very powerful chapter. It's an encouraging chapter, incredibly encouraging. And this is what Jesus says. He's praying to God, this eternal life, the eternal life that we have is that we know God, that we know him, not just possess information about him, but we have close communion. We have fellowship with him. And we know him through Jesus Christ and being conformed to his image and his likeness and knowledge and righteousness and holiness. So then, saints, I encourage you to be looking to Christ, moving toward the image of who humanity was created to be. So whenever we go, we display ourselves as the ones who have been transformed into the image of Christ, into knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. All right. I'm going to close with the psalm. And then, like I said, I'm going to have to head out. But I will 
maybe field one question if anybody has a question. Or y'all can discuss amongst yourselves for a few minutes because we've got quite a bit of time before the worship service. But before I close, Psalm 24. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your head, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory.